Hello and welcome back to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I'm an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado, and I really appreciate you tuning into the episode today. Thanks to all those who have emailed and texted me ideas about topics for the podcast or guests they want to hear from. If you would like to be a guest on the show or know someone you'd like to hear from, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com. Also, please visit our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, if you'd like to search the podcast in an easier way by topic. We'd like to hear from everyone and really appreciate you guys listening. Keep in mind that everything we're discussing here is based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement everything you're learning here with approved research studies. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode. Today I'm with Dr. Andy Letcher. He's an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Andy, thank you so much for joining us on another episode. Oh, enjoy this, Grant. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I've gotten terrific feedback from the other episodes that you've done. We did multiple bone grafting techniques, implant techniques, all the cool stuff that you're doing in your practice. So I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and some of the things that you've experienced. So good. Today we were thinking it would be a good topic to discuss a little bit about your technique on orthognathic surgery and maybe even sleep apnea. So could you just maybe give us a brief rundown of how you do orthognathic surgery in your practice? Yes. So I pretty much have set up to do mostly in my office for the last seven or 10 years. And it's evolved over the years. And I guess, number one, a lot of people wonder, like, why do orthognathic surgery? Because for, you know, some people, they get, how do you make it profitable? And so the reason I do it, I guess there's about three reasons is, number one, I really do enjoy the surgery, always have. And I think most oral surgeons do like it to some extent. The other reason I think it's profitable when you do it correctly, especially in our office, how I do it, and I can explain that. And the third reason is it gives you a diversified surgical base to treat. Like in the early 2000s, my implant practice was taken off, and I thought, well, maybe I should stop doing orthodontic surgery. It's managed care is making it less profitable. It's difficult to get reimbursement. I go, no, I really like doing it. I feel like I have a talent. So I kept doing it, and now it's come back to be really a big part of my practice. So I really enjoy it. Yeah, that's great. Can you talk to us about how you're able to do it in your office? Yes, it's evolved over the years. So in the 90s, when I I did my first orthodontic case, a young girl came in. I think she worked at Taco Bell, a little taco restaurant. And and her orthodontist sent her to me. She had a really gummy smile and short chin. And he goes, hey, can you fix her jaw? And so I looked at her and I said, yeah, I can do this. So I did a Maxo and a chin on her in my office at a really low price. I had a nurse nurses come in and basically wired her together for two weeks to save her the bone plate costs. And she sent me monthly payments for several years. But I was thinking about it. It's like at the same time I was doing iliac crest bone grafts in my office with an anesthesiologist on 70 year olds. And I thought this is actually a more straightforward, easier case to do. And at that time, I was going to the hospital two to three days a week doing orthognathic surgery. And so I just evolved to make it easier to do. But my practice has always been set up to do orthognathic surgery. And there is some infrastructure to do it. And I guess I can talk about that to begin with. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So number one, one thing that it gave me a little advantage to it is when I trained at Ohio State, not only did we do a lot of orthognathic surgery, but they taught us to intubate our patients in the clinic and so third molars and so forth. So my practice is set up to intubate most of my patients. And so 
in every OR, I have an anesthesia machine and third molar patients get intubated basically always unless they have health reasons they can't, such as malignant hyperthermia or something. And so that part of the infrastructure is set up. And my implant practice has also required me to have bigger ORs to do it all in. And so that's part of it is I, so I've got the anesthesia machines and the other piece of equipment is I guess you need a lot of, you need all the instruments. And so that's like a one-time cost. And so I bought those just because even when I went to the hospital back in the nineties, they didn't have a lot of equipment. So all the saws and drills, I kind of took them to the hospital with me. So that's part of it is getting the equipment. And that's not that hard to do really. I mean, we have backup power generators and so forth. And a lot of that, you need it just as much for four arch implant cases and large complex implant cases, which to me are more risky procedure in some ways than orthognathic surgery to do in your office from a medical standpoint. The other part is, I mean, I I do a lot of orthognathic consults. And so doing orthognathic surgery in your office or at the hospital, there's a mindset to it where you need to have your consult prepared. You need to have paperwork for a clinical exam for orthognathic patients so you can measure them on a regular basis and do your proper diagnosis. I mean, most people are trained to do that. And so I've got all that paperwork in place, have my insurance girl learn how to file the insurance and so forth. So the other thing is for my consults, just like I've done for implants, I've got before and after books that I did on iPhoto and I've got the beginning section of a, it's a big nine by 11 book, mostly a picture book with a few descriptions, VME cases and class two VMEs and then class threes and open bites. And so I show those patients. And so that's how it's evolved. So in the 2000s, late 2000s, I was going to the hospital, doing them on a basis. And I was doing a lot of them in my office as well. And there's a big demand for it because many people don't have insurance coverage for orthognathic surgery. If anything else, that's what drove it doing it in my office. So I was doing people that didn't have coverage in my office on a global fee. In my insurance patients, I was taking the hospital to do them there. But as it in the probably 10, 12 years ago, I was getting more complications because less and less of it was being done in the hospital. And the nursing staff and the recovery room, the OR just wasn't what it was in the late 90s because there's way less volume by myself and other oral surgeons. So it wasn't as efficient. And kind of the thing that changed me the most, I was having lunch one day, I was doing three Laforts back to back. And when I was going to the hospital a lot, I always have lunch with the anesthesiologist. And one of the anesthesiologists, I'd done a upper jaw, lower jaw and chin on his daughter in my office because they didn't have coverage for it. Or we just did it there. And he's like, why do you bring the cases here? And the other anesthesiologist who I cycled with, it's like, yeah, why do you come here? And I'm thinking, well, I kind of do it for medical legal reasons and maybe because it's the standard of care, but is it really? They're questioning me and, you know, going to a lot of Amos meetings and there's a lot of orthodontic surgery done in an outpatient setting, especially when you get to like Mexico and Venezuela, some people spoken at the Amos meetings and the office has become, I think, a better environment to do it in, a cleaner, safer environment. So that's how it's evolved. Nice. And do you have an anesthesiologist doing the anesthesia portion during the surgery or how do you work that? Yeah, we have an anesthesiologist. And so at times I've used nurse anesthetists, but I like having an anesthesiologist. There's not a big increase in cost. Like in our area, 
I pay maybe three seventy-five an hour for an anesthesiologist with a six-hour minimum, and so I'll say a couple thousand dollars a day. The twenty-five hundred a nurse anesthetist might be two hundred dollars an hour, but the whole case, like for example, an orthopedic case, I do a global fee. Like an upper jaw is eighteen or nineteen, the lower jaw is seventeen. My prices are actually on our website. We have global fees, and so when I look at okay, I'm going to say six hundred hours having a or eight hundred hours having a nurse anesthetist. But if you have that person there, not only to do the case, but if something went wrong, you want a partner, a cohort. So if something ever did go bad, which we've never had trouble ever, I'd want a medical doctor anesthesiologist there rather than nurse anesthetist. And because with a nurse anesthetist, we, the surgeon, are pretty much responsible for the anesthesia. They kind of are, but it's like, it's a lot better having an anesthesiologist there. In my opinion, we look at the cost difference. And there's a group I work with, Dr. Stan Plavin. He's got four or five people he works with. So it's usually the same people. But one of the big benefits, just as for in general, for four arch implant cases, orthodontic cases, for a lot of your doctors out there, a lot of people are bringing an anesthesiologist to their office, you know, to do these cases. And they bring it nestus, but having an anesthesiologist in my office one or two days a week over the years, you really learn a ton. You know, they're in your office. They go, we got these new drugs we're trying. They help set up your emergency drugs. They go through things like this is an improvement you can make. And so like when they're given a drug for hypotension or hypertension, I'm like, what are you giving? Why are you doing it? Why aren't you giving a narcotic? And I just take a second to ask them. And you'd be surprised over like, you know, 50 visits a year over all those years, how much you learn. Anesthesiologist is an educational experience, like daily almost. So, and my nurses that when I do like an implant case and they're innovated, one of my nurses or assistants will do it. So when I have a jaw surgery case, I usually have people standing around because it doesn't take that many people, and I've got a big staff. So one of my nurses like basically assists the anesthesiologist. And he'll just talk to her the whole case about what he's doing. So it's kind of educational. Yeah, that's invaluable. Yeah, I really think it is. So one of the things I probably should tell you that's worked out for me is, um, is going to global fees. You know, how to make it profitable is probably a lot of people's questions. That's kind of the big challenge, I think, in our specialty. And when I was on some plans in the 90s, it's just like I would get paid, you know, 1700 a jaw for a double jaw. And that same insurance company paid me $2,000 for a set of thirds. And you're going to the hospital for a long period of time. It just didn't really make it worth it. And so. And I was also doing cases in my office that didn't have insurance. And so I had these, I ended up doing a global fee. I used to have all these charges. And so now I've gone to like a double jaw with chin is about 37,000 all in. And from that, I pay the anesthesiologist. I pay for the bone plates. I use bone morphogenic protein in the upper jaws. That's why they cost a thousand more if you're doing a single. I'm going to charge three grand extra for arch bars, but the patient doesn't get a hospital bill. They don't get any other charges. And so in their mind, they like, hey, this guy can afford it. And when you have like a roid, uh, say a class two, eight millimeters of overjet, and you're going to charge them 17 grand all in. It's not that much more than putting three implants in somebody and three crowns. It's like they're going to spend 15 grand on those teeth. In the whole scheme of things, I think it's a really good value. But I do lose a lot of patients to the oral surgeons in our area that are on the plans. They go to the hospital and they do them. And Emory University, they do a lot of the people on the plans. And so, you know, it's actually a little bit of a surcharge 
coming to our office, but I also think we tried to shoot this five-star service and we have our meetings like where are we falling down on five-star service. I mean, you can't get everything right every time, but I'll go through our protocol a little bit. Okay. So like, for example, Tuesday, I'm doing a case. And so a couple of weeks ago, we did the pre-op. We had the virtual treatment planning through KOS and they'll make the splints for us. And so the patient will come in at, it'll be a 7.30 start. They get there 45 minutes early. They'll get the antibiotics and the steroids in. I like to get the steroids in 30 minutes before the surgery or 20, because I don't think they're very effective if you give them after you've started the surgery. So we'll give them 12 adacrodon. So we'll put them to sleep, nasally innovate them. I'll do the procedure. Like the double jaw takes me between two and a half to three and a half hours. You know, maybe if I'm doing a four piece maxilla, a little longer. It takes me 30 minutes longer if I'm putting arch bars on, if they don't have braces, their Invisalign case. So I usually block about four hours off for a double jaw. And so I have the procedure when they finish, we wake them up and they go to our recovery area. And I've done a research project that I presented at Amos about five years ago about my recovery technique. And I did a research project that we retrospective about how long people sit in our recovery area before they go home. And I send my nurses home, but a single jaw, the average time was like 61 minutes in our recovery area. A double jaw is just a little bit over an hour and a half. Part of this key is so then we send them home and we have one of our nurses follow them to their house for a minimum two hours. And I used to make the patient pay $50 an hour and they can keep them as long as they wanted. But that had to do a two hour minimum because they get there. They go, we don't need your nurse. Go home. And so but the nurse is necessary. But now I just pay my nurses a fee of $400 to go to their home because they have to drive their car there and stay there and recover the patient and maybe two or three hours, four hours, but it's worked out well. Let me backtrack a little bit to the technique, okay? The anesthesia technique, I think, is very critical, in my opinion. So it's kind of evolved. In the 90s, I had this really bright anesthesiologist, and my third molars, I kind of quit doing Valium or Versed then. I cut out narcotics, and so I was doing wisdom teeth with just propofol, inhalation agent desferane, no other drugs besides like succinylcholine or something to tube them. And so I do my orthognathic case that way too. So they'll come in the room, we'll give them no versed, no narcotics, put the IV in, give them a couple cc's of propofol to relax them, intubate them, and then do sterile drapes on them. Myself and my assistants, we wear sterile gloves and masks, but we don't gown and glove, kind of the way I do hip bone or do implant cases, except for hips with gown and glove. But I use a lot of local anesthesia. So like if I'm doing a upper jaw, lower jaw, chin, I'll numb up a little bit of everything with some Marcane, and then I'll do a lot of anesthesia in the chin, do that first. Then as I'm starting the chin, I'll numb up the left side of the jaw because I'm left-handed and I start there first. And so then I start before I make my incision on left sagittal split, I'll do the right side. And so then when I do the lower jaw first, so as I'm putting the bone plates on, but before I put my last bone plate on the mandible, I'll go to the upper jaw and numb that up. And I use 1% lidocaine, the Epi-1 and 100,000 just to, so I can use enough because you don't want to overdose them. So I use a lot of local. So you get a dry case and it also helps the anesthesiologist basically not use narcotics and just use basically a pure technique. Every now and then they'll get someone they have to give narcotics to and they'll give them some other drugs, but they kind of understand that we try not to use sevofrine. It completely changes the recovery, not only that day, but the next day. And so that's critical. I believe, for my technique. What part is critical, the not using SIVO? Not using SIVO, not using narcotics, not using Versed, just pure anesthetic, just pure de- inhalation agent propofol. Okay. 
You just feel like they recover quicker or what are the benefits? It's pretty significant. When you use Desferine, when an hour later they're in the recovery room if they had no narcotics, they're like really alert. Like even I see that with my third molar patients versus my sedations, they're so much more alert. It's it's the lack of anything besides the Desferine that they get. They just they're so much more ready to go home. And one other thing I've noticed, and I've talked to the anesthesiologist about this, jaw surgery is different than implant cases. Like if I do a full arch implant case on a 80-year-old, upper and lower, like so, it's a pretty big procedure to do on a 75, 80-year-old, five hours of surgery. It's a different recovery and they can tolerate better than an 80-year-old would tolerate orthodontic surgery because I believe the implant case your swelling is basically from the alveolar ridge forward. It's really not in the soft palate, the pharynx. And so the orthodontic surgery, their soft palate, their jaws are a lot more stiff, you know, back in the pterygoids. So it's a tougher recovery than implant cases. And that's why I try not to give them a lot of narcotics and sedatives during the surgery so they can maintain themselves. And even though they're really swollen, they're pretty alert. And really the swelling, you think about it, peaks out 24 to 48 hours later. And if you're doing it in the hospital, they're going to go home and the swelling is going to accumulate the next day or two. And so. Yeah, that's great. I mean, as far as like potential urgent or emergent complications, like such as bleeding, how do you handle that stuff? I've had two bleeds and they've all been about two weeks later. And one was an upper jaw many years ago. I did it at the hospital. And we determined that the intubation caused a hit a pseudo or caused a pseudoaneurysm and then on a nasal ciliary artery and that bled. I took that patient back to the OR before I knew it, down fractured the maxilla, couldn't find a bleed, it kept bleeding, and ended up doing the neuroradiologist embolized. That was early in the 90s. I'd never seen that technique. And then I had a lower jaw. I was doing the inferior border blade that I use and that nicked a branch of the facial artery and that bled a lot during the surgery. I packed it with a surgery cell. I couldn't really put a bovie down there, but it maintained it. But that boy came in a week later on Christmas Eve, actually. And so I had to send him to the hospital and have that embolized. But intraoperatively, I've had a few bleeds, you know, and the down fracture of the maxilla, the great calcium arteries will bleed, but I've always been able to maintain that and cauterize it. I basically cauterized. And if I do, sacrifice the greater palatine artery, which I usually try and preserve, especially in the office. I'll cauterize it and then I'll put some surgery cell back there. If not, I don't put surgery cell. One thing too, I kind of want to mention, I went to Bill Arnett's orthodontic course in about 2002 or three or four, many years ago, out in Santa Barbara. He had this four-day mini residency where the orthodontist came and he talked about his technique. He kind of got famous in our field of for treating the open bite, doing three-piece maxillas. And so I always enjoyed his presentation. So I went out there and did that. But he actually taught me, he changed my technique in several ways. One is doing the mandible first, which is really nice to do. You get stable joints, you get your occlusion, you get your midlines on that way. But it requires solid fixation of the mandible. So I put two plates in the mandible intraorally. I used to do through the cheek screws. But he also taught me the inferior border blade, or he was using the inferior border blade, which I did in my residency. So you'd have your medial cut, the vertical cut, and then the sagittal cut. Well, the inferior border blade is a blade that goes on your reciprocating saw. It's an upside down cut, and you go from your front vertical cut back to the angle of the mandible back, and it separates that inferior border. 
it took me a while to do it. And so when you cut that, you get a nice split just about every time. It's um, I had a bad split this year for the first time in years. I had to put extra plate on it, but it's just, and it also really, really, really cuts down on your nerve damage because you're splitting that in for a border in half the saw. It takes a little bit of time to get good at it. And that boy, I told you, I cut the facial artery out. I didn't have that blade inside my channel retractor and it got out. That's how I nicked it. So it's a little bit of technique, but that was a big plus. The other thing he taught me, it's like, I never really did this, but when I elevate the nasal floor, mucosa and a maxilla, I spend it, there's an instrument that's a little bit flatter, wider, bulkier than a freer elevator. I strip that nasal mucosa off that and I actually separate the septum at that time with that elevator. So when I down fracture my maxilla, basically that nasal mucosa is very clean and intact. And so that cuts down your bleeding too. So Nice. Those are good tips. And then you're using a reciprocating soft for your other cuts. Yep. So I use that for all the cuts. My first one's a vertical followed by the back horizontal. And then I use the saw for the sagittal. One thing is I found interesting at the last year or so, I do a lot of wisdom teeth at the same time as the jaw surgery instead of taking them out ahead of time. And I did that when I switched over. Arnett was doing that because when you put two bone plates per side, you don't need that bone where the third molar was to put your screws in you know, from the proximal to distal segment, you're putting plates on and it saves your patient a surgery. And so I do that. If they have them in there, I say, save it. And one of the things I've noticed, this is just my conjecture. It'd be interesting if any other, your listeners could ever discuss this is when the wisdom teeth are in there and I do that split in the mandible, it seems like the wisdom teeth keep the nerve deeper, more lingual. And there's basically your nerve is basically almost never see it. It's maybe like when you take the wisdom tooth out, that hole fills in with bone and that nerve can actually move laterally because the wisdom tooth isn't there. And so like I may end up doing my daughter in the next year or so because she's got, I think she's got some sleep apnea. She's 16. She needs a chin down. And I'm thinking, well, I'm going to save her wisdom teeth in case I do airway surgery on her. So to preserve her nerve better. So I kind of feel that may be a benefit. Yeah, that's an interesting hypothesis. So that keeping the wisdom teeth actually positions the nerve favorably. So there's less issues there. I've never read or heard anything about that, but it just seems to be something I notice clinically. Okay. Yeah, that's very interesting. And then what size plates do you use? So I use the KOS or net plates. They're 2.0 plates. They're like four holes and like two per side. There's a little bit of a technique in doing it, but they're stout. You never get a non-union. In the maxilla, same thing. I use the arnet plates. The disadvantage of their net plates, they're harder to bend. They've got they're kind of anatomic. Like for example, in the left anterior maxilla, your plate's gonna come down and it's gonna bend forward. The front leg is gonna go anterior nasal spine. And up by your piriform rim, they kind of come forward. So that's where the thicker bone is. So a little bit more difficult to bend. And so it takes a little bit longer to do them, but they're strong. And I guess one thing I should mention is since I'm doing this in the office, I don't have the pre-made plates because I price that out with KOS. And if I could use the acrylic one, it's still, you know, 6,000 or 9,000 a jaw, the titanium, it's 15,000 hours. And, you know, it's, it's hard to justify making a patient pay that when I could bend the plates, you know, in 20 minutes, four plates or 30 minutes, however long, 15 minutes. 
One thing I've noticed though, too, a lot of my orthodontic surgery is for airway reasons. And if I'm doing a large advancement in the maxilla, and sometimes I use their largest plates, I noticed I was getting a little bit of relapse and the plates would bend basically. And I don't know if it's because I wasn't getting it mobilized enough. And so I've gone to putting the two arnet plates per side, you know, one of the anterior, one posterior. Then they have this ultra micro one five plates that it's a smaller plate system that they're really quick and easy to bend. So I put one per side on that, like a strap from the top to the bottom, you know, into the proximal distal segment, like two or three screws per side in the middle of those two plates. So when I put those plates on, I leave room for that. And that gives me an extra strut. So basically I'm putting three plates per side. And also those large advancements, I like to use bone morphogenic protein sponges in there. And it gives you a way to drape that in there. It's not going to fall into your gap because sometimes you get a pretty big gap. So I've modified my technique with those plates for big advancement. Nice. You saw some pretty good results when you were using the BMP. Yeah, so I've been using that since like 2007, right when I could first use it. When I was in the OR one time, it just come out. And I remember I was talking to an orthopedic surgeon. I was doing a Lafort. He goes, yeah, we got Infuse. So I go to the nurse, can you grab me a kit of Infuse? And she just handed it to me. And I'm like, I'd done a master's degree in bone grafting. I studied it. And I was like so excited, put that on there and put in there. But at first I was using too much. I did a three-piece maxo one time on a girl, an orthodontist niece who came up from Texas. And I put like a large kit in there. And her face was so swollen. I remember sitting on the beach and it swelled up and her eyelids were almost closed. She sent me a picture six days later. And she goes, is this normal? Or she goes, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm sitting there looking at the seagulls. She sent me a photo. I'm like, whoa. I go, yeah, that's normal. And, you know, they went away and she turned out beautiful. But she did paint me a picture of a seagull taking up my condo. <laughs> but I learned that that's a lot. But one of the things that happens with the BMP and I'm Surprised more people don't use it, especially when they do it in the hospital, because it's just so easy to use. Like a regular Lafort, if I'm doing a three or four millimeter advancement or six, actually, I always do at least a six millimeter advancement. I'll use a single extra, extra small kit, which is about an $800 cost to me because I buy them in bulk. But if I'm going further, I put two of them in there. But whether you use one or two, you get some a rebound swelling at about day six or seven. So for example, a typical Laforte patient, they'll have their mega swelling. I do say I do it on a Tuesday, Thursday or Friday, they'll get pretty swollen. Saturday, it starts getting a little better. And then Sunday or Monday, I usually get a call from the patient almost religiously. Hey, I'm getting the swelling around my eyes. They send me a picture of their lower eyelids getting swollen and it alarms them because at first it wasn't that swollen, then it's coming back. And that basically is a BMP working, bringing in, you know, fluids and cells. And so I have to tell them that I tell them all that preoperatively, but I go, you're going to call me Sunday or Monday. And I'd say three, four is due anyway. <laughs> and I reassure them, but then it goes away quickly on day seven or eight. But you actually get a lot of swelling due to that BMP. I did a chin the other day, a girl had a strong chin, a young, pretty girl, but she had this really strong chin. So I, I moved it. If I'm setting a chin back, four hours will take it inferior four so it looks good because you want to maintain that soft tissue envelope so i used some of those one five plates in there and i put that bmp in her chin because there's a big gap so i use it on the chin sometimes as well there's a gap but i never use it on the mandible 
Sounds good. So, yeah, sounds like you're getting great results and it's been pretty predictable for you. Hey guys, real quick, KLS Martin is offering a summer sale special that includes 35% off instruments and a BNR special that includes two free hand pieces with the purchase of a console. This is an amazing offer and it's limited to one console promotion per customer and is only valid until July 31st, 2023. So the BNR Pro L allows for both implantology and surgical applications with up to 80,000 RPMs, which I love. I use it on the 80,000 RPM setting every time I'm doing thermolar extractions and have no issues with power or comfort or control. I just love how they feel in my hand when I'm using them, and I just um, can't say enough about this system. So please use the promo code capital E-O-S-S, lowercase U-M-M-E-R, 2023 to take advantage of this offer. Enjoy. Yeah, I keep waiting to see a research project to comparing BMP to whatever my associate, Paul, came from Chapel Hill, and I go, do you guys ever use BMP? There he goes, no, we use croutons. And I'm like, I just thinking, why don't people use it? Because the insurance company's picking up my office. I'm paying for it out of my pocket. But I just think it's so much nicer, and it just works. I did a revision about many years ago. I went back on a Lafort. Actually, I might have been that girl that had that bleed. I was actually after that one. But I went back on somebody to redo a, a Maxilla three weeks after I put the BMP in there, and it was like cardboard. It was starting to form like a callus. I'm like, oh, this is like, I was really curious to see what it would be like. And so you could take a um, parallel elevator and smash through it. But it was like slightly moist cardboard. And I'd never gone back and seen it. But I had another girl I put in BMP, I rebuilt her maxilla. And I went back two years later to put her implants and she never came back. I did an anterior ridge. It looked like the femur or tibia. It was solid as a rock bone after two years. It's like shiny cortical bone. <laughs> yeah. Very nice. Do you prescribe, you know, steroids after the surgery for the swelling issues or no? So our protocol is I give them 12 milligrams pre-op. If it's a single jaw, we don't give it post-op, a dose in the OR. But if, so my typical routine would be, say I'm doing a double jaw, 12 a decadron during the surgery with the antibiotics in it at four hours later, which is kind of the half-life of ampicillin, I'll give them four milligrams of decadron and two more grams of ampicillin. But then I don't use a medrol dose pack. I do what I do for my third molars is I've got three little four milligram tablets in a little baggie. They're little green tablets. The girls have like 50 baggies, you know, sitting out. And they just give them to the patient in the recovery room and say, take one every 12 hours. So they'll take take one tonight, tomorrow morning, and tomorrow night. And so that's my post-op dose of steroids. It's mostly to taper off the, you know, up and down mental effect from it and that's dexamethasone you said yeah dexamethasone nice and what's your kind of post-op uh, regimen as far as seeing them and all that stuff so we give them narcotics you know hydrocodone liquid antibiotics for a week liquid amoxicillin paradox and so i usually see them a week later and then sometimes i won't see them till five weeks that's a six-week appointment but if it's a complex case, I'll see them at three weeks, especially a lot of the older sleep apnea patients. People come in, and I like to see them sometimes. So you just do a single jaw. There's not much to do with the three-week post-op, you know, besides, hey, you look good. Yeah. And you said you're doing VSP to make your splints, or how are you doing the splints? No, I do the VSP. So for many years, 
I did all my model surgery by hand. It was like a big project. You know, it's like part of my weekends. I'd have these articulators lined up for double single jaws I do on a gladi. And still the single jaws we do on a gladi articulator. If it's a two-piece maxo, I'll cut it in half and wax it and get the bite set of the gladi and make my splint. If it's a really wide expansion, I'll make a paddle splint. But the double jaws, I do the virtual treatment planning. And it's been a really, really nice thing because I thought I was good at it when I first Started doing the mandible first, Arnett's technique. I wasn't doing virtual treatment planning. That was in the early 2000s. And I didn't get the beautiful aesthetic results I felt like I was getting by doing the maxilla first. Because it's kind of hard to predict where that central incisor is going. If you got a deep bite or a class two and you got to, you know, you can try to. But I wasn't getting the really stellar cosmetic results. I was getting good, but not stellar. But now that I'm doing the VSP, I can do the mandible first, but we treatment plan the upper incisor first. And so I said, like, I have some that doesn't have an airway and they're a little bit gummy. I like to bring them forward seven, seven and a half millimeters and pack them, you know, to, to whatever, three or four to what I want to do and then bring the mandible forward. But then they'll make the splints with the mandible first. And so I feel I can get achieve way more ideal aesthetics and the other thing the virtual treatment planning is your midline's lined up beautifully. When I think about the cases I've had to redo in the, over the years, I'd say there's 70% are probably the occlusion being off and 30% were was I didn't get the midlines correct, you know, with my model surgery. And, you know, you don't really know that until six or seven weeks later. And since I've kind of got this technique down with KOS in the last year or so with the virtual treatment planning, we really haven't had to reset anybody. There's one person I had to redo his upper jaw because it relapsed, a big airway case. I, it was close, but I just wanted to redo it. But otherwise, that's when I went to adding the third plate after that, man. Do you use like guiding elastics afterward or what do you do? That's a good question. Yes. Yeah, so we don't. I don't leave the splints in. And I typically, before I wake them up, I kind of check their bite a couple of times and I try and get that bite dead on before they wake up. And I take a little video with my camera, my iPhone of their occlusion. So I know that's where it was. And sometimes I'll check their bite, pull the throat pack out, check it again. Cause if it's not a real reproducible and say it's been a tough surgery, take a little longer. You want to make sure the bite's good. And so I typically don't use guide. I don't haven't used them in years, but I also don't leave splints in place unless it's a powder splint, but one thing I'm really particular about is if that bite's not dead on, I'll reset it. If it has to be the upper jaw reset or one side of the mandible, I'll reset it at that time rather than think I can fix it with guiding elastics because I really don't think guiding elastics do much. You know, it's like, that's why I don't like leaving splints in because it can camouflage. I feel it'll camouflage a poor result and then you're going to leave a lot of work for your orthodontist behind. Yeah. Okay which still happens now and then. Got it. So you have a certain percent coming from orthodontists for just correcting bite. And then are you also doing orthognathic surgery for um, like sleep apnea type treatments? Yeah, I'd say uh, probably 50% is from the orthodontist and for malocclusion and maybe, yeah, probably about 50%. But the orthodontists are also sending me apnea pa sleep patients as well, even if they have a class one occlusion. The orthodontist and the dental, dental community in Atlanta is getting a little bit pretty good at diagnosing sleep apnea. And so 
I get a lot of the other 50% of my patients are either cosmetic just for a gummy smile or chin, the gummy smile. I don't really count, count chins as a jaw surgery, but we do a lot of chins. But the other one are airway patients, and they're sent to me primarily by dentists, but probably a third of them are looking on the internet. They see our website and we've got some video testimonials and so forth. And and so they come in for that. And a lot of those patients, they don't have braces on. And even a lot of our orthodontic patients don't have orthodontic appliances on. They're in line of therapy Invisalign. So we end up putting arch bars on probably at least 50% of orthodontic cases. That's one reason I can't use guiding elastics. And so you can, you learn you've got to get your bite pretty good. If you're if they come in with a class one occlusion, you're just bringing them forward for the airway, going to do orthodontics unless they have to. But I always tell them, I go, I can only get you so close. You've got to be prepared to see an orthodontist afterwards for linotherapy or for braces. And they're like, okay, a lot of those patients are so desperate to get their airway fixed. They're fine with that. But a lot of people have a little bit crooked teeth you know, and they're going to need orthodontics anyway. And I tell them, if you're going to go through all this, let's do some braces along with it and get your teeth lined up. If you're going through all the trouble of orthodontic surgery, your way, kind of get the whole works. And so we get a lot of our patients to do that. Probably 75% of them end up doing that, at least 80% orthodontics. If they don't need it, they're still going to do it. They didn't come in thinking they need it just because they're, they're going through the trouble of orthodontic surgery. They typically will go along with straighten their teeth out. And how often do you like a segmental maxilla for like closing open bites and stuff? Quite a bit. They have an open bite of, you know, big five or six millimeter open bite. I'll do a segmental maxilla. And so come in between the canine and the first bicuspids. That actually have a surcharge for that. It takes a whole nother hour to do it because you've got to be pretty technique sensitive. And I do it with arch bar sometimes, but I truly believe that's the, your best way to close an open bite. If it's a two or three millimeter open bite, sometimes I can close it in the mandible or just close it with a maxilla. I really feel strongly that that occlusal plane needs to be leveled. And so if they have a big open bite, that's what I do. And I do a lot of um, expansions too. A lot of the sleep apnea patients don't need a palatal expansion, but I do a lot of two-piece maxillas expanded and so in that, I'll actually, you know, make a cut inside the lateral nasal wall on each, on each side and meet in the midline and split it. And if it's a wide expansion, like six or eight millimeters or more, I'll make a splint that's, that goes across the palate. And I put a couple 28-gauge wires around the teeth to hold it in place just to keep that expansion for six weeks. Because if it's a big expansion, it'll relapse if you don't put that in there. Okay. Well, and for your sleep apnea patients... Are you seeing pretty good results when you're doing that MMA and opening up their airway? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty shocking. And so I got a few minutes. I'll talk about how that's evolved if you want. Yeah, it'd be great. So, you know, I've always done it for some airway. And years ago, I went out to, or Jeff Rouse, you probably know who Jeff Rouse is. He speaks at Spear. He's a prosthodontist that started in Austin. Now he's with Spear. He does a lot of airway talks to the dental community across the country. And I really think he's an expert. He's pretty much determined that a lot of the TMD is due to airway. And I've taken his courses, his workshops. And so when you do that, you'll understand airway disease and how it pertains to their overall health. And so combined with that, with what we learned in oral surgery, these patients come in for consults for sleep apnea, and, and most of them have a sleep study, but some don't. And so I've gotten very comfortable 
diagnosing 90% of them based on their signs and symptoms and or their sleep study, we take a lateral CEF and the lateral CEF is not a legitimate diagnostic aid for airway, but it's beneficial. So if I take a lateral CEF and they have a three millimeter posterior pharyngeal airway where normal is about 11, I'll trace it, we'll send in the insurance company. And I believe if it's that narrow, all those people, when you advance their maximum mandible, it completely corrects them. So I'm in the process of doing some research with my cone beam, trying to set upper and lower limits to try and get a standard with the cone beam for the airway volume. That's kind of my next project. And we're also doing some home pulse oximetry. But that the problem with that is it'll give you the apneic patient, which is not difficult to diagnose. But you can't really diagnose the upper airway resistance patient. That's like a 30-year-old girl comes in or man, and they kind of have sleep apnea. They've got dark eyes, but their CEF shows seven or eight millimeters. And they go, boy, is this really a true sleep patient or not? And so that's kind of a nebulous area I study. I'm trying to like come up with a better source. And I want to get the Caldwell home sleep study. It's a machine to do. It's, it's more than just the pulse oximetry. Get good at that to help diagnose that. To answer your question as far as how it improves, it's um, it's amazing the change in life for these patients. And um, if I do 10 sleep patients in two months, like nine out of 10 will be glowing. Like I can't believe how much better I am. One in 10 will say I'm way better. Yeah, much better, but they're not, but most of them are like off their CPAP. They lose weight. They have way improved cognitive function. It's just shocking and how much better they feel. And it's like some of these patients will come in at like three weeks or six weeks and they go, I could never slept like this. I'm dreaming. And it makes it so rewarding. It's like I have to kind of hold myself back in consults because, oh, you're going to benefit so much because I sound like a car salesman. You got to get this car, you know? But I'm looking at them like, we can help you so much, you know? And so we kind of like, people come in and they want to get it done tomorrow. And, you know, we can't get people on the schedule because we're booked out a few weeks for our orthodontic cases. But when they come in and do it, it's just life-changing for them. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, what a blessing to be able to offer that to people. With those sleep apnea patients, are you seeing more complication type stuff just by virtue of the fact that they're probably older patients? I really haven't, maybe a little bit. The surgery is a little bit more difficult. Some of the more difficult patients are the 56-year-old men that have a drink a night or two drinks a night. They're going to bleed more. They're definitely a different case than a 17-year-old. They're harder to work on sometimes because they're chubbier. Their anesthesia, they sit around a little bit longer. Their recovery is probably a little bit more difficult the first couple of days. But the other hand, I'd say a third of our patients in the recovery room will say, I've never taken a breath so deep as easily. They have almost instant improvement on at least a third of them. And it's like, it's like you never see that at the hospital because you're not seeing them in the recovery room. So I think that helps the recovery, but I haven't seen like infections or issues with those patients like I thought, but we also, you know, I'm not going to do a 280 year old or 280 pound, 70 year old sick person in my office. You know, it's like those patients, we just don't treat. You know, it's like I have to have my anesthesiologist fine with them. And so I'm not treating the really sick apneic patients. But one of the things, it's amazing. I think our specialty is missing the bullet a little bit on not 
promoting orthonetics surgery for airway. It's people come in, they don't know where to go. I've listened to podcasts on airway. There's a lot of confusion out there in society, in dentistry, and especially medicine's not very well. Medicine's getting better informed, and dentistry probably is better informed in sleep than medicine is. But it's such an untreated area. It's a, it's a big untreated market, I think, because it can help so many people. You know, and I do believe 95% of the TMD is due to sleep. We have young people come in, 30-year-olds, 25-year-olds that have TMJ problems, and I look at them, and it's kind of, I have to sit there and spend time with them, evaluating their signs and symptoms, and I realize this is your way, you know, because their set's not that bad. They're going to pass a sleep test study because they're so young, they've got upper airway, airway resistance, that's not going to really demonstrate it, but they've got this bad TMD. I'll do the maximum mandibular advancement and it goes away. And they're like, gosh, I can't believe I'm finally comfortable. And so that's a more difficult area to diagnose. When you say that TMD is due to sleep, are you thinking that like sleep apnea, bad sleep is somehow causing bruxing, which leads to TMD or what's happening there? Yeah. So what I explain to my patients is like, for example, I have a lot of 35 year old, for example, women come in. They'll come in and they have bad TMD, a little bit dark circles under their eyes, and and they've been all the TMD specialists in town. I'll get my CEF on them. I'll look at them, and it's like, it's questionable. I look at them, and I listen to them, and I'm convinced it's, t- it's airway. And so I'll, here's what I believe their pathophysiology is. So that 35-year-old patient will go to sleep, and after 30 or 40 minutes of carbon dioxide in their blood elevates. And their brain senses it. Like, oh, we've got a little bit of airway disruption going on. Sends out a low dose of epinephrine signals to tighten up their pharyngeal muscles, clench a little bit, kind of the fight or flight response. And that'll cause them to clench a little bit. And that'll go on 40 to 50 times an hour. And they'll clench as the night goes on. It's going to become worse. And those are called micro arousals. So they don't wake up. They're not aware it goes on. They're still asleep, but their brain wakes up enough to clench their teeth. But their brain waking up during those micro arousals keeps them out of the deep sleep, like third stage or fourth stage, whichever one you call it, where your body goes through all the repairs. It sends out the hormones to deal with aches and pains in their body. It doesn't relax your body. Their sympathetic system's turned on night and day. Their immune system's turned on. They're in a constant state of inflammation. They also don't dream as well. And so that's the difficult patient to diagnose upper airway resistance. They're probably going to be fine on a sleep study, especially kids will, but they still have the airway disease. But that's what causes their clenching at night. And they're clenching it all night long because their body is sending out their adrenaline. And then they wake up, they're tired, and it's going to be worse. So it goes on all day. And that is the pathophysiology of that process. Jeff Rouse actually has written a lot of papers on that, the bruxism triad. Like, for example, women, when they hit 40, 45, their progesterone drops off. Progesterone is a driver to breathe. It's a bronchodilator. And so that also accentuates any sleep issues with them as well. That's one reason women tend to have more TMD than men. Yeah, that's fascinating, the process that can happen when your sleep quality is affected and decrease your healing ability and reparative ability and all that stuff. The dentists are really learning a lot about this. The problem is the home sleep studies that the dentists give 
pulse oximetry that'll show the apneic patients, like, you know, the really, truly older person that's got a bad airway and a big belly, that kind of thing. It's going to show apnea, but it doesn't show the woman I just described with the upper airway resistance. You get an upper airway resistance is different than apnea. It's your airway is just narrowing down. So the carbon dioxide builds up and they get those microarousals rather than the true apneic. That's what's more difficult to diagnose. And, and, you know, I feel like I can get a sense of it on my examination because I just see so many sleep patients. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thanks for describing that. Are there any other challenges or kind of issues that you face with doing orthognathic surgery in your office? Well, the infrastructure is one thing. It's, you know, staff having good assistance, I think, is critical. So I think if a young doctor likes to do orthognathic surgery, he should make sure he's got a room capable. It doesn't have to be that big, but you're going to need the saws and so forth, a big table rather than a mail stand to put all your equipment on. And I have a, and a surgical tech that's been with me 21 or 22 years. She improves my speed on it and so forth, or just my um, proficiency in my nurses. And so you want to have at least a couple good assistants. So if a young surgeon is doing this, this is how I started doing it. I had two or three of my nurses get privileges at the hospital. So they become proficient assisting me at the hospital. So then when I would go to my office and do it, I had that proficiency of my assistants that did that at the hospital. So the ones that didn't have insurance, I could do that. And I kind of evolved in that. So those people have been with me for a while. And so now one of the challenges is, you know, like not your good assistants aren't there all the time. Like my main girl, Casey, has been with me for 25 years, super good. She was on vacation a couple weeks ago, so we did a bunch of cases without her. But I've got some nurses that I've been trained. So whenever I'm doing these, I'm always cross-training somebody, you know, so you want to cross-train your assistants. And it slows me down a little bit without the staffing. And so, and I also think it's key to have a good nurse in your office. I know the first couple of years, it may not be affordable to hire a nurse. I'm a little bit overstaffed on. I'm not really overstaffed, but I've got a lot of nurses because that's, for a while, it's all that responded to my ads for new assistants when I brought my associate on. But nurses are special people, I think, because they're just caring. Like they're true nurse, like the term nurse. They nurse people along and they have a lot of experience maybe in the recovery rooms or ICUs and you know, we're not nurses as doctors, you know, they are so much better recovering patients. and They're just a really good person to have on your team. And so that's something good. So have experienced people cross train them so that if someone's missing, you can kind of still keep carrying on, have a nurse. And so I think if somebody wants to, you know, someone that getting out of the residency and they want to do these in their office, they should just maybe start with single jaws. And, you know, if you, I don't know how proficient you would be, but I have four or five hour cases and I'm fine with that. We put diapers on our patients. We used to put Foley catheters in them. And then for our implant cases, we started putting diapers on them. And so patients like a diaper better. (laughs) And so we use like, you know, the kind that old people wear, we get the diapers. And so, you know, having a 20 year old asleep for two hours or four hours isn't a big deal. So if they can do a single jaw in a couple hours, two or three hours, that's reasonable. Just get the equipment, take your time. You know, I think oral surgeons, we're craftsmen, you know, it's like you want to take your time, do each step perfectly, and you're going to get a good result. That's how you cut down on complications and don't say, oh, I'm doing a small office. I got to be fast, this and that, you know, it's just like do your technique 
precisely. And even when you're hospital, like do your maxillas carefully so there's not much bleeding and get your skills down and take those same skills to your office and be patient and, and you know, slow is good and, you know, good is fast. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know. I like that. That's good advice. Well, good. It's been good to hear your kind of technique and your the experiences that you've had and how you've been able to kind of cut down on costs and make things more efficient by doing this in your office. Appreciate you describing all that for us. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to it. I don't know what to tell you. There's so many things, you know, <laughs> the advantage of the office, you know, I feel it's a cleaner, better controlled environment. The continuity of care of your patient coming in for your pre-op with a nurse that's going to go home with them that assists in the surgery. And we usually have that girl, whoever's going to that nurse take a lunch break while I'm closing. And then she sits in the recovery room with him. And so it's a really beautiful continuity of care with that. Yeah. And I'm sure you can just have more control over the patient's experience when you're doing it in your office. And it's just, there's so many variables that, that make things inefficient in the hospital. Yeah. It's cost effect. I mean, it, it makes it affordable for you because you're not spending a half day doing a $2,000 surgery there. Yeah. Man. But I think if you're in your first five or 10 years of your out of residency, you should go there and do it. Even if it's, if you love doing orthopedic surgery, you should go to the hospital, get proficient and pick the cases to do in your office. And I think that's kind of how I did it. And it would still work in this day and age, you know, so um, get your proficiency up and get your team up and it can be done well and bring an anesthesiologist. And I would recommend to instead of a nurse anesthetist. I mean, there's some 20 year olds. One time someone came in and I did an 18 or 19 year old lower jaw and I put them to sleep just like my third molars without anesthesiologist is a very healthy young person. It's like, that's kind of our setup. I can do that now and then, but I prefer having an anesthesiologist there. Yeah, that's a good pro tip. I'll tell you a crazy story. So we had a 35-year-old guy came in and we we're doing a Lafort one on him about two or three years ago. And in health history, we still do an HMP. I kind of have my old school techniques. Like if I go to the hospital, we still have HMP forms in our office for our jaw surgery. So we'll give them the anesthesiologist. And so perfectly healthy, except, yeah, and I swim laps, you know, sometimes I get lightheaded or my pulse slows way down. So anyway, we're doing a little Lafort on him. We put him to sleep, draped him. I lifted his upper lip up, made an incision, you know, from buttress to buttress. That's all I did. And my, I hear my anesthesiologist, this woman says, hey, I'm getting a little bradycardia here. And so the, you can hear the heart rate going from like 40 to 30 to 20. And we're looking at the monitors and it goes to 10 and then it goes asystole. And this is like, all I'd done is made an incision in the upper jaw. And I've got this guy, healthy guy. So like, oh shit. So we lean on, so we, He's already kind of laying flat. We flatten him out. We move the, you know, the tray out so his chest is clear. And you kind of check your monitors. Like, is this really true? You know, so she's giving him some atropine. And I'm feeling his pulse with my wrist, on his wrist. I go, ah. Felt around for after about 30 seconds. I don't, I don't feel a pulse. And so she's giving him some atropine. After about a minute, I'm just looking at him. The chest is just sitting there. So I just lean forward and put my wrist my two hands just kind of get a couple pumps. That's probably 80 seconds into it because it probably took 30, 40 seconds to, you know, diagnosis. She'd given him probably 2.5 milligrams of atropine. She'd given him a lot of atropine. So I couldn't feel a pulse. So I just did it like a couple pumps, just gentle. I didn't do CPR. I just did a push and then five seconds, a couple more pushes. And it was just enough to circulate that atropine from his arm into his heart. And then the heart rate popped up. 
And I'm like, Jesus. So we're like, wow. <laughs> so we sat there for a minute, you know, watched him. And he's like, turn stable. And we're doing a single Lafort. And so I asked the anesthesiologist, like, well, do you want to cancel it or keep going? And she goes, after a couple minutes, she goes, ah, I think we can proceed. I go, let's give it a couple more minutes. Because <laughs> I still got to close him up. I go, let me dissect a little bit more. So we just proceeded and he was fine. Wow. And, and so we told him later, I go, you mean, you had this like asystole event. You need to get your heart checked. Yeah, that's <laughs> a sobering fine. experience. It, it was kind of one of those decisions, you proceed or not. I'm like, you know, looking back, I guess it was fine, but I don't know what the right decision was, you know? Yeah. But good to hear what you did and how it worked. And I mean. And it's kind of like, I was glad I had an anesthesiologist because she had no qualms like giving 2.5 milligrams after. It was a big dose, maybe 2.53. I wonder if a nurse anesthetist would have. I wouldn't have. You know, if I'd been one of my third molar patients, I'd probably have given maybe two doses, you know, sitting looking at it. But it was a learning experience. Hmm, that's amazing. <laughs> wow. I'll probably make you sweat for a minute. Yeah. Well, good. Thank you for sharing all that. If there are listeners who kind of have further questions about some of this stuff or want to delve into it deeper, are you okay with them reaching out to you? Yeah, that'd be fine. Yeah. Anybody wants to kind of come see our setup over in Atlanta, we can see how we do it. I think I had a good, there's a lot of people in the U.S. doing orthopedic surgery in an outpatient setting. So we're not the person there, but that's just my technique. But yeah, I'd be happy to discuss it with anybody. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andy. I really appreciate your time today. Hey, Grant. Thanks so much. Good talking to you again. Same. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Once again, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com if you have any topics you'd like to hear about, guests you'd like to hear from, or if you yourself would love to be a guest, please, please email me or text me at 720-441-6059. And also just love hearing from people if you enjoy the podcast or, you know, learn something from it or talk to a friend or connected with someone because of the podcast. That just makes my day. So please shoot that correspondence over to me and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you.